is the Rebel Author Podcast, where we talk about books, business, and occasionally bad words. Hello, Rebels, and welcome to episode 145 of the Rebel Author Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Steph Green, and we are going to be talking all about how to do a skeleton draft. Essentially, a skeleton draft, if you don't know, is a fast drafting uh, method for your early early book draft, uh, and it will help you get to the end a lot quicker. Uh, but first, to last week's question which was, it's mid-year, what one thing will you complete by the end of the year? Eden Collier said, uh, another cracking episode, it's made me think about where I want to start my whip. Uh, I also wonder if the reason a lot of writers have some sort of background in psychology is because both writing and psychology focuses on how people function. On the question front, I'd really like to have a first draft of my steampunk whip done by the end of the year. Bear Kloss said, the one thing I'm going to commit to completing this year is my debut. I've been working on it since 2017 and I want it done. Ian Worrell said, second draft of one of my novels. Jackson Hollingsworth said, I loved this episode, especially as I'm still writing the beginning of my work in progress. I'm two chapters in. My goal is to have finished the first draft of the queer historical fiction I'm writing by the end of the year. Love that you're writing queer fiction. Uh, Karen Heenan said, I want to complete the second book in my 1930s historical series and do the least uh, and do at least the first round of edits. It's scheduled for October release. I love that loads of historical uh, writers uh, uh, follow this podcast, especially after my outburst <laughs> recently. Um, it's, yeah, I, I love you guys. I love you guys. <laughs> Okay, this week's question is, tell me something fun you have planned for the summer. The book recommendation of the week this week is a book I have been listening to on audio. My sister actually recommended this book uh, to me and it's called The 12 Week Year by Brian P. Moran. Uh, it is a little bit corporate focused. Uh, he is not looking at writers, of course, uh, but nonetheless, the principles are fantastic and it kind of uh, works with my, uh, what's it called? My uh, clever flop. <laughs> Clever Flox. <laughs> Easy for me to say. My Clever Fox Planner. I use a quarterly planner, so I have four planners a year, and that is pretty much the only way I can actually get through a planner because I get bored of planners very quickly, whereas the Clever Fox keeps me on track because um, it only lasts for three months. I am not an affiliate. This is not me. <laughs> like promoting it it's just the fact that I literally actually use the clever the clever fox planner uh and uh I use their quarterly I don't know what it's called quarterly something 13 week productivity something or other it's called anyway and so uh my sister recommended the 12 week year and uh yeah it's really good I like it uh I'm not really sure it's telling me anything new or anything that I didn't really know um but it's certainly a great reminder and um, a good audiobook to listen to. So yeah, I recommend that this week. All right, well, in personal update news, whoa! 
I have literally spent the last two weeks bashing words out um, and I feel like I've kind of dropped off the face of the planet and I kind of do this when I'm when I'm deep into a project um, it becomes like my my sole focus uh, everyone drink focus with a capital F like switches on and I just can't really do anything else um, and I don't know whether that's a good thing or a bad thing but what I do know is that I am drafting this book faster than I have ever written anything in my life um, if I continue at the I think I maybe don't want to talk about the, the specifics and exactly how fast I'm doing it until it's done because I'm you know I don't want to jinx myself or whatever but I have made quite a few changes one that I think I've already told you guys about which is Ourite which is this web room where you go in and everybody has a text document but nobody can see each other's text document but you can only see each other's word counts and of course that you know um encourages multiple of my strengths to write faster and um that has really really made a difference other little things as well like when I draft I now keep my window blinds shut because my office faces a, a street and so every time people walk past I end up looking out the window and then I lose my place and then I lose my pace as well as my place and um yeah, so like, I don't know, just lots of little things that I have done have, have compounded to mean that I'm, um, well, I can tell you this. Uh, so I use my old uh, average word count for a day was X, and I'm now writing double X in about two to three hours. <laughs> so it's quite a radical difference this time. And I think that's one of the things that I need to explore and go deeper on to try and figure out really what it was this time that made such a huge difference because I like obviously really want this to continue, especially as I am trying to make my mind up right now what my next nonfiction book will be because I'm going to write Scent or finish editing, drafting and then editing Scent and then I'm going to work on the next non-fiction book and then after that non-fiction book I will probably write two fiction books and then come back to non-fiction or at least that's the plan right now who knows because like I have 5,000 other things I want to do as fucking usual so <laughs> you know I can't be relied upon not to change my mind on, on what project's going to come next so yes I don't know anyway I yeah that's that's kind of my questions for July is how the fuck did I make this happen so quick? Uh, and uh, yeah, so I don't think I have much else to tell you this week. I am waiting for uh, the anatomy of a bestseller to come back from the editor. And as soon as that's back from the editor, that will go into pre-production, pre-production, pre-publication. So that's going to go out to um, ARC readers. I'm usually pretty quick at doing the editor edits so that and, and formatting. So that should be turned around in a couple of days. Not that I have a couple of days because <laughs> I'm drafting so much, but apparently I'm going to be able to find a couple of days. It's a funny thing, isn't it? You, you set these lofty goals and then forget that you actually have other shit that needs doing as well. Ah, fuck my life. Anyway, yeah, so I am mostly uh, sorting out launchy bits in the background. I'm not going to do a big, huge um, blast this time. I'm just going to get the book out, I think. It's too it's too tricky with, uh, you know, us going off 
uh, on holiday for like three or four weeks this summer. Um, I just don't have the physical capacity or time to get everything done. So I'm going to put it out there and keep all of my fingers and toes crossed that it lands well and that you guys tell people if you enjoy it and leave reviews and all of that good stuff. And yeah, so please do help it. <laughs> Not that it's live yet, but it will be soon. Uh, yes, I will probably also do a special episode, I reckon, uh, for the podcast. Maybe a little extra something something for you. Um, yeah, but enough of that because I don't have firm dates or anything. So let's get uh, cracking. The Rebel of the Week this week is Katie Forrest. Katie said, a few years ago, I had to spend a week in London attending a course. My husband asked what I planned to do in the evenings, and I said I'd probably just stay in the hotel and read. He told me that was a waste and I should go out and have fun. He also told me not to go into Soho. <laughs> I imagined because he thought it wouldn't be safe. I did make plans and have fun. I went out every night, had cocktails, ate lobster, even got my first tattoo. Oh, <laughs> I love <laughs> but something about him telling me not to go to Soho made me want to. So I met up with a friend and off we went. We end... <laughs> Sorry. We ended up in a lap dancing... <laughs> we ended up in a lap dancing club where the dancer was happy for a little more interaction from me than the men in the audience. <laughs> I had a really fun night and my husband learned that I'll see anything he suggests I don't do as a challenge to do it. <laughs> oh my God. This has absolutely made my day. I'm crying with laughter. Oh, Katie, you fucking legend. <laughs> Brilliant. That has made my day. Oh, if you would like to be a rebel of the week, please do send in your story. Lots of people assume that we always have lots and lots of rebellions and we don't ever have loads in the bank. We always are, uh, well, no, that's not true. Sometimes we are lower than other times, but if you have a story, please send it in. They make make my week reading these. You can, you can send in any kind of rebellion, a big one, a small one, a cheeky one. It can be a pet's rebellion, a sister's rebellion, a brother's rebellion, a parent's rebellion, a friends rebellion it doesn't matter you can email your rebel story to becca over on rebel author podcast at gmail.com no new patrons this week but a huge ginormous thank you to all of my existing patrons we had a monster poison and prose session last night loads of you turned up and it literally like Oh, it filled me with joy to see so many of you there. I really cannot explain how wonderful the um, Patreon community is. You guys are amazing. You're so supportive to each other. You're always answering each other's questions and encouraging each other in the Slack group and participating in like the challenges and the movie sessions that we've done and all the rest of it. So yeah, I just... Thanks for being awesome. And also thank you for supporting the show as well, because it does, it does like financially, it helps to keep the show running as well. If you would like to support the show and get early access to all of the episodes, as well as a shitload of bonus content, then you can from as little as $2 a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. And actually there is so much bonus content now that I've, um, 
I've made a public post on Patreon, uh, which I might actually link to so that you can see all the different types of content that you get. And I'm also going to post this across to uh, my blog shortly uh, too. All right, there is a sponsor of the show this week, which is Pro Writing Aid. But rather than me tell you all about Pro Writing Aid, I'm going to turn you over to the very lovely Lynn Reed Aubrey. Hello, my name is Lynn, and I'm an author writing in science fiction fantasy. And I use Pro Writing Aid a lot. I highly recommend it. It is an amazing program, and you can use it at any point while you're creating something. I usually use uh, Scrivener or Word or a handy napkin to write my ideas down. And then once I get it down on the page, I, I start editing and I use Pro Writing Aid to help pull out those weird grammar things. Like I ended a sentence with a preposition or what words I'm overusing too much. I really have an issue with the word that. I use that all the time. And I also misspell the word the. I'll have to look into that. See, right there, right there. Pro Writing Aid can help you with that. So I highly recommend it. There are so many different tweaks, uh, tools inside of Pro Writing Aid that you can use to, to help your writing, to publish your writing before you send it to an editor. However you use it, just use it. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Rebel Author Podcast. Today, I am joined by Steph Green. Steph is the USA Today best-selling author of dark, gothic and sinful romance. Her books feature clever, witty heroines, secret societies, creepy old mansions and alpha males who always get what they want. Steph is also the creator of Rage Against the Manuscript, a resource of free content, books, and courses to help writers tell their story, find their readers, and build a badass writing career. Steph lives in New Zealand with her husband, a horde of cantankerous cats, and their medieval sword collection. Hello and welcome. Hi, Sasha. Thanks so much for having me. And just before we dive into it, I have to say that I was recommended your, um, I call it skinny drafting, but I know that you call it skeleton drafting, um, course by a uh, a friend. And I loved it. And it really, like, I I am, well, I have skeletoned my next um, book and I found it super helpful. So, um, yeah, thank you so much for producing the content. Um, I'm so excited. I love it. I love hearing when people, you, you know, kind of take this little method that I thought was just this thing that I did and like you know like find it really useful I just that makes me so happy I just love it oh well I am very grateful but before we dive into like the content around skeleton drafting can you tell everyone a little bit about your journey like how did you get to where you are today I certainly can right so when my journey starts way back as a as a kid where I loved writing stories, um, just like probably like all the rest of us. Um, you know, I loved books. I loved writing. I loved art. I loved all those kind of things. Um, and I always told myself I was going to be a writer and an artist, but I actually wanted to be an archaeologist. Um, that was my dream from the age of about seven until the end of university. 
Uh, and the reason that I am not an archaeologist is because I'm actually legally blind. And what I discovered is that um, very good grades and enthusiasm will get you so far in life. Uh, and then there comes a point where you have to try and find a job and people are really mean. And, you know, yeah, basically I got a lot of you know, we, we don't think you can do this. We, you know, we're worried that you'll ruin artifacts. You know, we think you're wow. a health and safety risk. And, you know, I was quite a young, naive, um, you know, just out of uni kind of person. And I, I basically tried to get, get work for about 18 months and it get not, keep getting knocked back again and again and again. And... I had one particularly bad incident um, with a museum owner that I, who I had been working for unpaid uh, on an internship for six months and basically a job had come up and I said, well, you know, look, I'm already here. I know the museum. I would love this job. And he said, well, I can't give you the job because I think you're health and safety risk, which is, you know, it was perfectly fine when I was working for free, but suddenly I, you know, asked to, to be paid. And anyway, so I come home and I'm in tears. Uh, and my boyfriend at the time, who is now my husband, sort of gave me a hug and he said, well, you know, you could kind of look at this a couple of different ways. You could say, well, you know, you could keep going and like, you know, if you want to keep going and if you really want to do this, I will completely support you. You know, we'll keep, um, you know, we'll keep looking for jobs in museums. We'll keep, you know, we'll keep doing it. Or you could say, well, I've done archaeology. Like, you know, you've had this awesome job working in this museum. You've been on all these jigs all over the world. Like, you've done all these things. So you could say, I've done archaeology. But what would be the thing that I would like to do next? And would that thing be something that people couldn't tell me I couldn't do? And the thing that immediately came to mind was, you know, if I could be anything that wasn't an archaeologist, I'd be a writer. So, but I didn't know like how to be a writer, how to be a, a novelist. And so I did what any self-respecting millennial would do, and I Googled how to make a living writing novels, <laughs> something like that. And I basically tried to do everything that Google said. Um, so I, kind of similar to your story, actually, I basically I set up a freelance business and I started doing really, you know, like cheap as articles for like Etsy sellers for about, $15 for an article I'd write the Etsy shop for like 25 bucks or so it was real cheap far too cheap um, and you know I kind of built up and built up sort of freelance business while also on the side writing um, novel after novel after novel to pitch to agents and editors and things like that and basically I did that for 10 years while working a non-archaeology day job and I and then it finally happened. <laughs> I got the publishing deal, um, a, a three book deal with a big publisher. Um, but then the editor of that publishing house uh, decided to, the editor of my imprint decided to retire and the publishing house decided it was time that they would cut her line back. And so I was one of the books that got cut. And I was kind of looking down the barrel of the, all this over the, decade of hard work to get to this point and basically having to start over from scratch and at the same time I a couple of things that happened one was that someone had given me a kindle 
and I discovered the joy of reading digitally, especially as um, a, a legally blind person, a visually impaired person, where I could, you know, any book became a large print book. And I had been reading online about people like Hugh Howie, who had, you know, made all this money um, self-publishing their books on Amazon. And I thought, well, oh, you know, I might as well give it a go. So I self-published my first series, which was a, like a dark fantasy series, and that sold sweet FA. But it was so addictive. Um, I was like, this is what I am meant to do. Um, I, you know, I love everything about this. I just have to figure out how to make it pay the rent. <laughs> and so Q, sorry, this is quite a long story. Q, um, <laughs> it's about 2015. And I go to a party and a friend is there and she's talking about Fifty Shades of Grey, which she's just read. And I had tried to read a chapter and I thought it was terrible. And so I was having a bit of a bitch about this book and she was getting a bit annoyed with me which is completely fair enough and so she said to me well it's not like you could write a book like that and she didn't mean because you can't write she meant because you're like the sweet innocent one and I could never imagine you writing a, like a sexy BDSM book and so I kind of went yeah you're probably right I'm definitely not a sexy book writer but in my head I was sort of going well, challenge accepted so in secret, without telling anyone, not even my husband, I wrote this like 30,000 word novella and it was a paranormal romance um, and it was about a, a sexy fox shapeshifter and the woman who kind of tamed his wild heart. And it was so much fun to write. I, you know, it, it used to take me sort of four or five years to write a big fantasy book, but I wrote this little novella in three weeks, I think. And I paid someone to give me a, a cover um, and I published it on Amazon and then it sold a thousand copies in the first week. Wow. And I went, oh, wow. <laughs> and so I kind of kept expecting Amazon to sort of call and say, well, look, we've made a mistake. Um, <laughs> but they, they never called. And so I sort of sheepishly had to tell my husband, well, I've actually made some money self-publishing this month, but it's not from my super serious science fiction books. It's from this you know, the sexy fox shapeshifter paranormal romance. And when he'd finished laughing his ass off, <laughs> he said, well, are you going to write some more? And I said, well, yeah, I am. And so I kept writing and I was basically publishing a book every two months. And I was sort of just writing stuff that I thought was fun. And it was selling pretty decently. I was doing sort of between two and 4,000 a month, you know, pretty much every single month. Um, and I did that from 2015 up until 2018. Um, and I had a freelance business on the side and I was working here in New Zealand in like tech companies. So it was quite demanding work. Um, and then the, the way I quit is a whole other story, but we won't go into that. But I quit in February, 2018. Uh, which I quit basically on my birthday. It was the best birthday oh, present I wow. ever, ever gave myself. Um, and so that's 1920, So it's four and a half years, basically, I've been full-time. Um, and ever since I quit, 
the books have just leapt and leapt and leapt and it's just been it's just been amazing I just right. I'm so happy I love that story funnily enough I although I didn't quit on my birthday I quit about four days before my birthday so it felt like the most amazing present I'd ever given to my given myself so yeah I, I completely uh relate to that um quitting the day job yeah I love that um, exactly yeah okay so we're, we're going to talk about skeleton drafting um so for listeners who may have never heard of a skeleton draft can you explain what it is and what the main differences are between a skeleton draft and a normal draft yes so skeleton drafting is how i write books fast as a pantser or a gardener or a discovery writer so I when I sort of first started digging into kind of writing craft and things like that I didn't realize that this I thought this was how everyone wrote books like I thought this was just you know this was just the the methodology of writing books and then I found out that there are these crazy people called outliners who like outline the whole book in detail and I tried to do that Um, and it's awful um, you know, I found if I did that, I didn't want to write the book because I knew everything that was going to happen. So the story was now done. It was now boring to me. And so I kept up this method of um, skeleton drafting. And it's, yeah, it's basically what it is, is, you know, we often talk about we've got um, plotters and we've got pantsers and, every, you know, and it's kind of a st- a sliding scale when everyone has their place on the scale you know you're further down the end where you love to where you need an outline in order to you know in order to start the story and you know down the other end of the pants is all the, all the hardcore gardeners and we can't have anything or you know we can't have anything planned or we're not going to write the book and so everyone's somewhere on that scale but the interesting thing is that when you start indie publishing, there's a lot of emphasis on um, the rapid releasing method, on you know being able to get, get books out faster. And that's one of the advantages, the big advantages that indies have over trade pub is that we're able to get books out really fast and respond to the market. Um, but when you read advice about being an indie publisher and sort of and the rapid releasing method, usually what it boils down to is learn to outline, even if you're a pantser, learn how to love the outline because that is the only way that you're going to be able to put books out faster. And I don't like that. <laughs> that makes my poor pantser gardening heart very sad. And skeleton drafting is a method for people who are pantsers, gardeners, discovery writers to get books out faster. And it works because it celebrates the things that we do really well, which is very character-driven stories um, and the ability to kind of pivot and switch things up and really get into the heads of our characters and use our characters to drive the plot rather than the other way around. And so basically, at its core, A skeleton draft is a very quick, um, very fast draft. Um, It it looks ugly. It's a very ugly draft. You would never show it to anyone. Um, For me, for like an 80,000, 90,000 word book, a skeleton draft is going to be between 10 and 20,000 words. 
and I write it in a big flurry of effectivity in about three days. And basically, yeah, basically it is a draft of the book. Um, I set, I use the draft to start setting out chapters um, and you know, thinking about the little cliffhangers at the end of chapters. Mainly what the draft is, is um, action, is emotion, um, and kind of, you know, kind of character. And it doesn't have a lot of window dressing, or none at all. Um, often a chapter, you know, a chapter that would be 2,000 words in the final draft, it might be like 200 words in the skeleton draft. Um, and so we fast draft this skeleton draft, and that allows us to get to know our main character. That's basically what we're doing. Um, we're getting to know the main character. And then basically what skeleton drafting gives you is by the time we've finished a skeleton draft, we not only do we have effectively kind of an outline, but we also have 10 or 20,000 words, which goes towards our final word count. And so it kind of does this double duty, which is really, like, it's really fun. It's really exciting. Um, and, you know, I find it a really, really useful method for pantsers. And, and a lot of other writers agree. So that's really cool. So it's funny that you mentioned about um, like plotters and, and pantsers. I, I was going to ask, like, is it only pantsers that it works for? Like, do you ever find that it works for um, plotters? Because I'm sort of somebody that sits somewhere in the middle of that. Like, I don't, I don't have a lot of an outline, but I do a lot of thinking before I start writing. And like, I really know, I know the story, but I don't, like, I haven't necessarily written a word or... Um, but like so I am I'm probably slightly more on the plotting end even though I don't necessarily write like an outline and then I do uh, a kind of a skeleton um but I don't uh differentiate between drafts so I just keep going so I get to a certain point and I'm like oh okay so we have the full thread now like of the plot um through this skeleton and then but I just keep I just keep going and just keep adding words. And so it then just, I don't know, like mushrooms out into a full draft. I don't know. I write a crazy way. Um, yeah. So like, can it work for everybody? Or do you feel like it's definitely really for pants? Like people who are, have some element of pantsing. So like I said, I think, see, I think all writers, it's not like you're not one or the other. We're all somewhere on a scale. Um, so that's the first thing is that there's no, there's no like pantser camp or plotter camp, although that's kind of how we articulate it. We're all somewhere on a scale. So there's a lot of people in the middle of the scale who are a little bit more like this and a little bit less like that. Um, so I think that's one thing. Um, the second thing is that I think all pantsers and all plotters, all writers that we, we go through the same storytelling, like story conceiving process, we just do it in different ways. A lot of people who are really hardcore outliners, they have to do that on paper. They have to use lists, they have to use an outlining method in order to go through that that process of kind of conceiving the story and the characters and the and the arc and the wound and the goal and all these things and people who are like kind of closer down the pants end they tend we tend to do that in our heads and we don't we find that putting it on paper 
um, in a kind of in a way that you know people often talk about in books with outlines kind of stifles that story that we're that we're trying to create so I talk to a lot of writers who are like you who do a lot of plotting in their heads and I'm quite I'm a lot like that myself um, and I think I think the skeleton draft works really well for those kind of writers because it um, it kind of gives you a framework to sort of get the first bit of your story sorted without, um, but, but in a way that feels quite natural to you because you've already done a lot of the work in your head. Mm. Um, so I think that's the second thing. Um, and I think the third thing is that, you know, for any writer, when you're trying to come up with a, you know, with a way of writing books, and especially if you're trying to write books faster, it's really good to remember that everything, all these methods, these different methods and these different books and these different kind of writing gurus that try and teach you different ways of, um, you know, conceiving of books, none of it's prescriptive. Like you can take bits of this one and bits of that one and bits of that one and put it together in a way that works. I often get questions where people say, oh, well, you know, I want a skeleton draft, but my skeleton draft is more like 40,000 words for a, for a 90,000 word book, or it's more like 2,000 words. Is that okay? Am I allowed to do that? And I'm like, of course you are. You know, you do whatever feels, whatever feels natural to you and whatever works for you. That's the right answer. Mm, mm, yes, well, as a uh, hardened rebel, I clearly <laughs> agree with you entirely. <laughs> so, okay, I hear that you're a pantser, but are there like any points that you like to know before you start um, skeleton drafting? Are there any like story elements or um, scenes that you need to know before you start uh, that to help you not derail yourself during the process? Yes. So I think there are three key things that you need to know before you begin a skeleton draft. One is that you need a character. And you don't have to know heaps about this character because your skeleton draft is basically where you are learning about them. But you do need to have kind of a sense of them. You know, it's just a sort of that sort of sense in your head of kind of who they are or, or who's this kind of character type that you're interested in writing. Um, and the example that I always use when I kind of talk about this is, so I have a series called um, The Briarwood Witches. And the whole thing about the series was that I wanted to write this really science nerdy heroine um, who found herself in this kind of magical setting. And so the whole idea of the book is about her reconciling uh, the the magical world with this really logical scientific mind that she had. And that was the concept that I had at the beginning. And so, you know, it's just, it's sort of simply that, like having an idea of who this character is and kind of what are the elements of them that you're interested in exploring in this book. So having a sense of the character, that's the first one. The second one is that you need a hook. And the hook, unlike when you write hooks to like um, picture books to publishers and things like that, this hook doesn't have to be kind of well-conceived like it doesn't have to be a thing that you tell anyone else but it has to be this thing that hooks you and so your hook needs three elements um, inside the hook um, it needs a character and we've already got a character so that's already done it needs uh, a conflict 
Um, so it needs this kind of, yeah, it needs something that's going to happen in the story. <laughs> um, and uh, what's the other thing? And it needs a genre. Um, because you can have a hook um, and that hook could work theoretically across many different genres, but you need a sense of what, what's the genre that you're going to be writing because that defines so many things that we're going to be putting into a book because that you know genre effectively defines the expectations of our readers. And we're in the business of meeting and exceeding those expectations. So we need to know what they are. So your hook needs a character, a conflict, and a genre. So for my Briarwood Witches series, I have this science nerdy heroine. And what I really wanted was I wanted her to inherit, because I love a gothic trope. So I really love the, uh, you know, the sort of innocent girl inherits creepy house trope. Um, and I wanted to kind of explode that and do innocent girl inherits castle because i love castles so that was kind of sort of the beginning of the beginning of my hook but i realized that girl inherits castle and magical powers is there's no conflict in that she could just like chill out on her parapet and drink margaritas for the rest of the book like you know that that's not a conflict um, so I needed to add some kind of conflict to this. So I started kind of going, well, you know, if she inherits a castle, she's going to have to move to somewhere where there's castles. Uh, so I thought, well, you know, we're going to set it in England, lots of castles over there. And then I started so kind many. of looking, <laughs> so many, <laughs> so many. Um, and so I start looking through mythology uh, and I think, you know, and you immediately, when you're in England, you immediately come across the Fae. And so I think, well, you know, this castle is going to have a, a portal down the back garden to the Fae realm, and they're going to end up with a Fae problem. And so there, this hearing becomes my conflict. Um, and so we've got, we're starting to get this hook. So we've got the character, we've got the hook, and then the third thing that you need to know is a sense of the ending. Now, it's a little bit, because you're a pantser, you don't want to know exactly how the book is going to end right now, generally speaking. Um, because if you know in great detail what the ending is going to be, then you don't want to write the book. That's you know, often true with a lot of pantsers. If you know too many details you know, before you go in, then you don't want to write the book. So we don't want to sit down and like plot the ending. And it's impossible to do that at this stage because we don't have enough of anything else. But what we need is a sense of what the ending is going to be. And the big clue to give you that sense is the genre. Um, so I write paranormal romance. So the big part of the genre is that, is that there has to be a happily ever after and a resolution for all the relationships. Um, and this is a reverse horror book. So there's... Um, uh, there's our heroine and then there's her five boyfriends so there needs to be a resolution for all these relationships a, a happily ever after so I know that that's what the ending has to be um, but you know because this is also a fantasy I know that our heroine I want our heroine to defeat her enemy 
Um, and because I know this key detail about the character that she has these two sides to her personality, she has these magical powers, but she also has this logical side to her. I know that I want the ending to involve her having to resolve those two sides of her personality in order to defeat her enemy, the Fae. I don't know what that's going to look like yet, but I know that that's what has to happen. And once I have these three elements, the character, the hook, and the ending, then I'm ready to start skeleton drafting. And what does that like look like to you for you? Because I know that you said um, that it, it for an 80 to 90k book, the skeleton would be 10 to 20k. So like what is in that? What what do you hit all the beats? Is it like I know you mentioned action, but like and I know that you said it was ugly, but can you, yeah, like, can you dive into what that looks like? Oh, it's so ugly. And in <laughs> fact, if, if you take my skeleton drafting course, what I've actually done in that course is included my 10 or I think it was 13,000 word skeleton draft for this actual book that we're talking about so you can actually see <laughs> you can actually go through it and see how ugly it is that is um, brave i i'm very impressed i i do don't you include a video of like where you actually write i can't because i actually took this course quite a while ago so it's been it's been a long time since uh since i watched all the videos Yes, that's it. I have a video where I go through that skeleton draft and I kind of point out different details in it and show you different things and just basically just show you how ugly it is. And it's it was very scary doing that, um, but it's been really helpful for people. Um, so with, with how I write a skeleton draft is that I tend to find that the first scenes in a book are the clearest in my mind. Like mm. that tends to be sort of what's what what where I begin. I, I tend to begin roughly at the beginning. Um, and with this particular book, I know I've got this heroine, um, and I know that she needs to inherit this castle. And because we know things from writing craft, we know that, that we have to have this inciting incident, and that has to happen really early in the book. So I know that I have to get her to this castle pretty early in the book. So I, but I, that means I basically have to blow up her life. So I spend the first couple of chapters blowing up her life. Um, so I kill her parents in a freak uh, carnival accident in the first chapter. Um, and I, you know, and I weave in a few details there that I don't know what I'm going to do with them later, but I write them down and I prepare my, you know, I write them down so I don't forget to use them later. Um, so I kill her parents in the first chapter. I rescind her college um, acceptance in the second chapter. Um, and then I send her the letter that she's inherited a castle. And then she realizes, and now she realizes that, well, if she can go, go to this castle, sell the castle, then she's got the money that she can go to college without her, and not, doesn't, she doesn't need the scholarship that's just been rescinded. So that's what I do. Try, you know, I'm trying to get to that inciting incident as first as possible. And I basically begin at the earliest scene 
that's clearest in my mind. And I may go back later and amend that scene or add another scene before it, but the, the, the scene in my head that's the first one that I have right now, I write that. And that tends to have actually quite a bit of detail because it's the one that's clearest in my mind. And it's the one where we're, we're all being introduced to the character. So we're all kind of starting to discover things about them. So often the first few chapters that I'll write, they might be, in a finished book, my chapters tend to be about 2,000 2,500 words. And in the, in the skeleton draft, those first few chapters might be more like 1,500 words. So they're relatively fleshed out. Um, and then what I start doing is I'm sort of, as I'm writing, I'm asking myself a couple of different things. I'm asking myself what the readers would expect to happen next based on the genre that we're reading. So, you know, for example, this is paranormal romance, so I need some love interests in there. So I loved this idea of her opening the door to her new castle and seeing a guy that she does not expect to see there. And I don't know who this guy is, but I need him to, I know he's going to be a witch with some certain powers. So I need to introduce him earlier in the book so that I can then she can then have the surprise of seeing him. So I make him the stranger that she meets at the carnival when her parents die. And then surprise, surprise, he shows up in her castle as a tenant in a completely different uh, country. Uh, and so I then have to go back uh, and write him in. And I don't actually go back. Um, I just write it on, I have a list in a separate document of things that I add that I want to include in later, uh, you know, subsequent drafts. And so I add this detail that in the first chapter, I need to introduce this guy uh, into this list and I just keep moving forward. So that's one thing that I do is I start to weave in the elements of the genre that I know need to be there. So effectively the beats. And then the second thing, but really what I'm doing, um, and this is a, the second thing and the most important thing, is all the time I'm asking myself, what would this character do next? Based on what they know about the world, um, based on their, their kind of character wounds, their personality, what would they do next? And I let that rule my decision-making, rule my plotting, rather than what I want to happen next in the plot. And if you keep that, if you use the character to drive the story, then you avoid those kind of situations where you have like a scene A and a scene C, and you need the character to move from scene A to scene C, but you have no idea how to do that. Um, those, you know, so those kind of um, things, you avoid that. So basically I let the character drive the story and as I go, I'm sort of, as I said, I'm sort of setting out rough chapters um, with a little bit of dialogue, bit of action, bit of character stuff, you know. Um, I love a good sort of building up the relationships, um, all the, you know, kind of all the relationship angst. I have a lot of that in there. Um, and I love to put in the, um, the surprise cliffhangers at the end of chapters. Um, so... But as I go through the book, the chapters get a bit choppier. Um, they often don't have finished sentences in them. If there's a word and I can't think of the word that I want to use, I just put a little symbol 
in the manuscript and then I can go back and search for the symbol later. Like I don't even stop to, you know, uh, Google a word that I don't know. I just keep going. The whole focus on a skeleton draft is to keep moving forward. Um, and so the chapters get more and more choppier. At the end of the book, they're often like 200 words a chapter. Um, and then once I reach the end of the book, um, then I go back to the beginning and I start again with a, a new draft. And I knowing now I know a lot more things about the character, a lot more things about where the book is going. And I can start filling in more of the detail. And I tend to do three subsequent drafts of the book. Um, and different writers do a different number of subsequent drafts. Um, and a different, sometimes different books require subsequent, num you know, different numbers of drafts. But yeah, that's that's essentially it's essentially skeleton drafting. So I have, I think I have two questions. Um, do you? So you kind of the way that I heard you talking is that you go linearly through it. You don't jump about um, for the most part. You you because you're asking what what would the character do next. You're you're moving linearly through the skeleton. Is that right? For ninety percent of my books, that's what I do. Okay. Sometimes, sometimes I will do it in where I have scenes in my head. And because for me, the whole point of a skeleton draft is to get the words down, get the ideas down as quickly as possible so I can kind of mold them into a shape that makes sense. So sometimes, often I find with the second book in a series or the third book in a series, I'll have some scenes in my head and I'll just write those scenes down. And then I'll kind of use the skeleton draft to figure out where they're going to go. Um, so that is a way you, you, you can use that as well. Um, but you have to be careful when you're doing scenes like that, that you are always asking yourself, in order to connect the scenes, you're always asking yourself, what would this character do next? And in a lot of ways, the skeleton draft is quite a good way of doing this because say you've got a scene that's, you know, in the second third of your book and you're writing it now near the beginning because you, it's in your head and you know it, but you might only do 300 words of that scene. Um, the very rough dialogue, very rough kind of um, sense of the emotions, very rough little bit of action. If you then have to amend that scene um, in order to fit it into the character's, you know, the, the actual the character's arc, when you actually get to that point in the book, you've only done you've only done the core, you've only done the skeleton of the work. So you may not have to amend much at all in order to make it fit in. And you haven't wasted a bunch of time perfecting a 3000 word scene that you then have to heavily edit in order to make it fit, if that makes sense. Mm, mm. Yeah, yeah, that so, does make so, sense. Yeah, so it's quite a good method because you, um, one of the downsides of being a pantser in particular is that we often end up rewriting a lot of things because we kind of take characters down the wrong path. Mm. And what I try to do with a skeleton draft is, you know, if you have to rewrite a scene, it's going to take less time because you've only got the skeleton um, there. So, you know, we'd save, you know, we, we get everything working in the skeleton drafting stage. 
and then later we finesse it and we make it all really pretty. Mm, okay. The second question that I had was um, just the way that you phrased, then I start a new draft. So does that, do you, do you work inside the skeleton draft document or do you open a new word document and kind of cut and paste in or like, how does that work? No, I literally just, I go to the beginning of the document and I just start again and I just okay. start reading what I've written. And as I go, I'm adding in more detail. And I have okay. this, this second document, which is open, and I call that my Chekhov's arsenal. And that's kind of this document that I've talked about where, you know, so Anton Chekhov, the playwright, had this famous phrase that he said where, you know, if you have a, a gun on the wall in the first act, then in, by the third act, that gun has to go off. And often as you write, you're putting a lot of guns on the wall. So every time I put a gun on the wall... <laughs> Um, I write it on a list in a separate document, you know, that I've introduced this character, um, that I've kind of made an allusion to this thing that I've, um, so one of the good examples from this series is that I have been reading about castles that have these things called priest holes, where um, they used to hide uh, Catholic priests during the um, the Civil War and the, you know, when Henry VIII made everyone Protestants, and so people used to often hide Catholic priests in these little priest holes, um, like hidden in walls or under stairs and things. So I wanted to have a priest hole in this castle. So in the first book, they give um, our heroine a tour of the castle, and they show her this priest hole. Now, you don't show someone a priest hole in a book unless later in the book that priest hole becomes an important place where they hide or where something happens. You know, it has to be used again. So I write the scene where they show her the priest hole and then on my Chekhov's arsenal list, I write priest hole in the library. And so I know that I have to come back to that priest hole in a later book or a later scene and use it. And so I end up with this list. So I have those two documents the actual document that I'm working on and then this sort of second kind of list document. So I have another question about approaching that second um, draft or version. I know that when I, so I have 23,000 words, I think, of um, skeleton for this book that I'm meant to be starting on Friday. Uh, we'll start well, by by starting. I mean, starting the like the draft that will go to publication. Um, and I tried to reread the 23K and I felt really overwhelmed by the fact that there were so many loose, not not like the, the thread of the story is there, but like there were there were loose bits of description or half like you mentioned earlier like half finished sentences and things so what advice do you have to kind of make that feel less overwhelming um because I I kind of was like oh maybe I should just start again with a blank document I mean again I think it comes back to whatever you know definitely comes back to whatever feels right for you um I think you know anything I say caveat that with um <laughs> if it works for you do it if it doesn't work don't do of it. course yeah um but um i think 
So I think a couple of things. I think for me, this stage of the process really excites me. Um, so I get a lot of I get a lot of like uh, pleasure out of kind of bringing the disparate elements together. Um, but I think it's really important to remember that I think as writers we often feel a lot of pressure that we that things have to be perfect mm. and that we can't move on until this feels like you know the greatest novel that we've ever written kind of thing <laughs> well, definitely and, suffer from that <laughs> yes and i i don't th- one of the great things about skeleton draft is that it enables us to as a lot of it is kind of designed to break you from that so you know you're focused on just getting down your ideas and going really fast and not going back over things because the last thing you wanted to be doing is say rewriting the first three chapters of a book but never moving beyond those chapters because you don't want to spend three years rewriting three chapters Mm. because if you actually finish the book you may discover that you actually have to cut those three chapters so part of what we're doing with that is kind of breaking free of that but I think it's also important to remember that well certainly I find that the second draft is not about making things perfect Mm. Um, it is about bringing the elements together we now know who our main character is we know who our protagonist is we kind of know them inside and out we know what their journey is going to be and so now what we're doing is just putting all those pieces together it's the the kind of you know like when you're doing a puzzle and the yes. first thing you sort of do is the the ring around the outside yeah and then the second thing you do is kind of the, the bits in the middle that are like the main focus of the um of the piece that's yeah. kind of what we're doing we're kind of putting those main bits together so that they're so that they're working and then the third and the fourth drafts uh, when we read through it and we we read with a focus on you know thinking about symbolism and themes and making the language really sing and is the dialogue just on fire and those are the really fun ones where we really get to kind of flex our sort of like our, our writing craft muscles but yeah I find for me that second draft where I'm going from from 20,000 words up to about 50,000 words. Um, That's really where I'm, that's where most people, when they think of a first draft of a book, Mm. that's what I'm aiming for. It's just that it's my second draft. And it's so funny because I think I worked out the issue as you were talking. Um, I I use that puzzle anthology, um, anthology? analogy analogy all of the time to describe my writing process because I don't write linearly so to me like I the pre-work and the thinking that I do before I start is the frame of the story and then I have to like a story though is a puzzle and I always put things in the wrong order and it's not necessarily it's just that I come up with different twists or whatever. So like to me, creating a story is like doing a puzzle because you have to like you work on a little clump and then you find another little clump over there. And then slowly but surely the clumps start to merge together. And like that is very, very close to how I um, write. But what I was thinking is that the reason that the document that I printed off feels overwhelming is because, as I, I think I mentioned earlier on, I go I I continue from skeleton to 
to first draft without a break. And the problem is, is that I had a break between doing the skeleton and then getting that first draft complete because the skeleton to me is, um, I don't know if it's the, I don't know. Now this is where the analogy comes apart, but like it's, <laughs> I get that thread and like, so that it, it goes all the way through, but then like, I don't know, like some things I go over some things more. So and it, anyway, anyway, I'm going to have to like actually think about this. Otherwise I'm going to waffle on like not giving a clear um, description, but I think I, I think I have worked out. I think the problem is that I had a break and normally I wouldn't, I would just keep going. I would get to yeah. the point where it felt like, okay, this is the story. And then it, it moves into second drafting, even though I didn't necessarily like stop and go, okay, this is my first draft. I'm done now. Does that, if yeah. that makes sense. Maybe, maybe what's kind of happened to go back to our analogy is that you've sort of lost the thread of the story. So it's almost like you're doing the puzzle, but you've lost the box which had, which had the picture on it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so you kind of need to get, yeah, because, because of that break, maybe you've kind of lost the thread that yeah. was carrying you through that draft and you just need to find that, that thread again. Yeah, um, that's so, yeah. Kind yeah. of find, kind of find the find the picture on the box. I think maybe that's the key. Yeah, that is. I love that. I love the way that you came up with that. That's amazing. Um, okay, like my last question before I ask the podcast question. Um, do you think just briefly are there any mistakes that people should avoid when skeleton drafting? So I think the most common um, mistakes that people make when they skeleton draft, well, you know, when you're thinking about troubleshooting a skeleton draft, and I have a big thing about this on my course, um, is, you know, so you might, the big one is that you've kind of pitted your characters against like an impossible foe, and you don't know how they're going to triumph. And, you know, obviously this isn't a problem that, uh outliners have because they figure this all out in the outline but we have to figure it out it's sort of we're figuring it out as we go and you know the biggest piece of advice for this is that you know we we've all kind of trusted we've all got to kind of trust ourselves that we we are writers we are seeped in story and so we we kind of know in our heads what has to happen we just need to sort of be we just need to trust ourselves that we that when the time comes we can figure it out um and for me a lot of this comes from we need to know emotionally for the reader what has to happen in the scene and once you've got that the actual mechanical details of what happens in the scene should be you know should fall into place they, they almost don't matter as much as the emotional satisfaction of of like a climactic scene so you know you're thinking you know if you're writing a fantasy or something like that and you're thinking about your these characters who are facing this impossible foe you know you think about the all the famous fantasy scenes that you've loved where that exact thing has happened and what you know what emotionally as a reader do you need to make that feel really amazing and then you know write that down journal it out um you know if you can have that this is why we like to have the ending kind of the sense of the ending before we begin because this helps us you know the whole way through the book we think as we skeleton drafting we're thinking 
I going to have to bring these elements together at the ending? And so you, I, I find usually by the time I get to the end of a skeleton draft, I've more or less got this sorted. Um, and it, I think it takes a bit of practice, but I think that's one of the big ones. Um, I think another one is that um, it's sort of various kind of character things like your story's not going anywhere like everyone's just kind of like wandering around or sitting around having conversations and it's just kind of really boring um and the other thing that sometimes happens is um like I said you've got uh, a scene a and a scene c and you need your character to go from scene a to scene c but you don't know how to you don't know what scene b is um and all these come from asking yourself what would this character do next? And letting the characters lead the story rather than what you as the author want the plot to be. Um, <laughs> you know, so you're, you're letting the character and her, her personality or her decision-making process or her wounds or her goals lead the story and define the story. And that's the big problem with that first one where everyone's just kind of wandering around and not doing anything is the character clearly doesn't have a clear goal. So you can't sit there and say, well, what would they do next? If the answer is, oh, they just chill out until something happened. Like that's not, you know, that's not what we want. Um, and that second one, you know, you're, you're in scene A and you've got to get that character to scene C, but you have to ask yourself, what would this character do next? Not how do I make them go over there? But what, based on everything we know about them, what would they actually do next? And hopefully you'll end up in the right place. Or you may end up at that scene in a way you didn't expect. Or that scene may end up, scene C may end up belonging to another character or something like that. Um, yeah, nothing's ever wasted. But you've got to, you know, yeah, we're all about characters. I think those are the biggest mistakes. Okay. This is the Rebel Author Podcast. So can you tell everyone about a time you unleashed your inner rebel? Oh, God. <laughs> that is like everyone's response. <laughs> so I thought a little bit about this because I guess we're a little bit, a little bit rebellious anyway. You know, I'm a bit of a metalhead, you know, my wedding was in a haunted mental asylum. Oh my goodness, you know. that is amazing! <laughs> like you know, we spent our honeymoon um, in a camper van going across Europe, visiting various music festivals. Like you know, like we're a bit wild. Um, so this one time, um, this band who I'm now quite good friends with came to New Zealand, and they're a pirate metal band so they sing they sing heavy metal songs about being pirates and they're a bit ridiculous and me and my friends all got tickets to this gig and we had a bit of like a pirate themed party before we went and someone brought this giant vat of meat and I drank far too much of this meat and so by the time we got to the gig I'm quite merry and we end up meeting the lead singer of the band sort of hanging around outside the club and we, we kind of meet him, meet up with him and it's me and sort of four or five girlfriends and we're all dressed in these like winch outfits, like pirate winch outfits and they have this song called Winches and Mead and he said, and then the singer said, well, if you like, well, we're playing Winches and Mead third 
So if you stand near the edge of the stage, um, in, in the kind of in the mosh pit, when we play that song, come up on stage and dance. And so this is what we did. So we all we all run off on stage and we're dancing around and I'm like singing in the microphone and I'm like, think, you know, I'm like, my, my husband said, it's like you thought you, everyone was there to see you. And <laughs> it was brilliant. And so the song ends and we all get off stage and I'm sort of standing in, if you're at concerts, you kind of know there's like a barrier um, before the actual edge of the stage usually. And so there's a gap of, which is a little bit less than a meter so that um, security can kind of get there and kind of pull people out if need be. So I'm sort of standing in that space and I'm supposed, you know, obviously everyone's gone back into the crowd and I'm like, but why would I do that? Because it's such so much better view from here. So I just sit down on the barrier, like front row center, just just me, just sit down on the barrier right in front of um, my new friend, the lead singer. And the guys behind me in the pit are just like shaking my hand and they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I just, it just never occurs to me to go back. Um, and I distinctly remember um, about sort of another few songs into the set, I'm joined in this kind of space where we're not supposed to be by like, 30 other metalheads and we're all just dancing in this you know chilling out in the space and the singer goes I thought there was supposed to be a barrier here <laughs> it's like well you know what New Zealand and he says a couple of swears he says if the barrier and we're all like yeah and yeah so I did that that was me um so yeah that's my I story love I love it any rebel story I'm just like oh it's like people speak to my heart they're like the stories of my soul <laughs> because like also I like one really common thing not necessarily with you given that your wedding and everything but a lot of people say oh I'm not rebellious and then like creative people tend to come out with like this really rebellious story about this one time they did this thing so yeah I love I love it I love it yeah (laughs) um okay so uh you have a discount that you are going to give to listeners so in amongst sort of telling everybody where they can find out more about you and kind of your books and courses and and like anything else that you would like to add would you like to tell them about that as well yes certainly so um my, all my books are under uh, stephanie holmes um and but you can if you want my writing stuff um i have a podcast and a website called rage against the manuscript and so the website is www.rangeagainstthemanuscript.com. And I have a very small, I've got a bunch of free stuff. I've got a podcast, I've got a bunch of articles, I've got all kinds of stuff on there. But, and I've even got a free course on how to plot your novel in 10 days. Um, but I have a really sort of inexpensive, short little course called Writing Your Skeleton Draft. Um, and that is rageagainstthemanuscript.com slash skeleton draft course. And if you use uh, the code REBEL, then you will get 10 bucks off the course. So it's $47, but now it's $37. So it's pretty cheap as chips. And it basically goes through in seven relatively short videos, it goes through the skeleton drafting process. And then I walk you through an actual skeleton draft. And so you can see kind of how it all works. And I have taken it and I thought it was fantastic and it really helped me. So I highly recommend that listeners go and check it out. 
And all of that information will be in the links, um, in the links, in the show notes as well. Uh, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And of course, a gigantic thank you to all of the show's listeners and all of the show's patrons. If you would like to get early access to all of the episodes, as well as a ton of goodies, then you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. I'm Sasha Black. You are listening to Steph Green, and this was the Rebel Author Podcast. Next week, I'm going to be talking to Monica Leonel all about going wide and how to grow your wide sales. So join me next week for that. Don't forget to tune in and subscribe on your podcatcher. And when you have a moment, please leave a review.